Okay, let's look at our scripture as we continue through the Beatitudes. This is Matthew 5, 6 through 8. Matthew 5, 6 through 8. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The word of the Lord. Well, I don't know if you've moved yet into the 21st century, uh, but a grocery shopping has changed. I don't know if you continue to go to the store. It's so passe to go to the store when you have the Walmart app, which is brilliant, by the way. Uh, we use uh, Walmart and Walmart pickup. Uh, you know, when you're running low on stuff, Lee Ellen says, put it in the app. And so I pick up my app and I go and I find it and I click on the heart and it adds. And at a certain time, we go to Walmart and we pick it up because that's the way to do groceries. Uh, but uh, uh, automation has continued with all food services, right? Anybody use Uber Eats? Uber Eats, not only can you get fast food, but you can get fast food even faster because you can use Uber Eats where you can uh, use the app and you can order from any fast food of your choice and they bring it to your door. I saw a notice that Uber Eats was experimenting with drone delivery. So imagine you want a cheeseburger, you simply go ahead and put it in and as you're walking along, uh, lo and behold, a drone shows up and drops a quarter pounder on your head. I can see the lawsuits that are going to occur uh, when that begins. You think hot coffee was a problem. Uber Eats. I want to talk about hunger in this sermon, but I don't want to talk about physical hunger. I want to talk about spiritual hunger. It was Mother Teresa that spoke about the poverty of the West. She said, we think sometimes that poverty is only being hungry, naked, and homeless. The poverty of being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for is the greatest poverty. We have all known hunger of our bellies, but we are certainly acquainted with emptiness of our souls. And it is much harder to find food for our hearts than food for our bodies, uh, for our souls. What app do we use for that? And in the midst of that, the Lord gives us a recipe for satisfaction. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled, or they will be satisfied. We've been going through the Beatitudes, and as I said last week, the Beatitudes are not a, a prescription of what you are to do in order to achieve the kingdom of God, but they are a description of what we receive when the kingdom of God enters us. See, to be a Christian, it's not as much as we've entered the kingdom at this point, but that the kingdom has entered us. And that we can begin in this life to participate in the life of the kingdom. The kingdom life is not passive. And so the Beatitudes are reminders of who God is making us or remaking us into be of who we are as they also spur us on to be who we are becoming. The reality is, and I don't have to tell you this, that if we hunger for the world, it will ultimately always lead to emptiness. 
But if we hunger for God and His kingdom, it will always lead to satisfaction. I want to look at these three Beatitudes over the next several hours. And I want to bring one point for each of them. Number one, which is all about hunger. Hunger proves that we need God. Number two, which is all about mercy. So if number one, hunger proves that we want God. Number two, mercy proves that God wants us. And then finally, number three, seeing God proves that we both will receive what it is that we want. That we want God and God wants us if we come into his kingdom. Well, let's begin with point number one. Hunger proves that we want God. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus is preaching to people in the ancient Near East, and they would be very familiar with the concept of hunger. It was an agrarian society, and they lived on the edge of, uh, of satisfaction and disaster based on how the crops were doing. Many of these people, the way they were fed was by the wages that they had for that day. And they would go and spend those wages in order to have food to eat. And if they had no wages, they would go hungry that night. We're familiar with the pangs of hungry that we don't experience maybe poverty to the degree of others maybe in this world. But this scripture says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now we all hunger, don't we? The great theologian Bruce Springsteen said that everybody's got a hungry heart, right? You lay down your money and you play your part, but everybody's got a hungry heart. But Jesus does not say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for happiness, which is really in America what we claim is our inalienable right, correct? We owe these truths to be self-evident, that uh, we are endowed uh, with a life, liberty, the right, and the pursuit of happiness, Jefferson was not speaking of a personal happiness then, but a civic happiness. But really, that doesn't matter. The fact is, Jesus does not say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for happiness, because you cannot find happiness. Happiness is a byproduct of something else. Search for happiness and you'll never find it. But Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, what does that mean exactly? If you were to boil it down in the Hebrew, what righteousness means, the translation, the literal translation, means conformity to a norm. Conformity to a norm. He would be an example of what I'm talking about. If you uh, own an iPhone and you looked at your time and you compared it to someone else who owned an iPhone, they would be the exact same time. It's actually a little creepy. I have an, uh, an iWatch or an Apple Watch. And you know Mickey Mouse, how he sort of taps his foot? If you got next to anyone else who had an Apple Watch and you saw, they would all be tapping their foot the exact same time. Well, how is that? It's because on the, they all link to the cell tower and the cell tower all links to a universal atomic clock that is giving Greenwich, Greenwich Mean Time to the nth decimal. They're all conformed to a norm. And so when it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, what it means is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the character 
and commands of God. They hunger and thirst for the character and commands of God. And they do so really in three different ways. Number one, they hunger and thirst to be found as righteous, to conform to the norm with their own hearts. There's a profound dissatisfaction, if you will, with themselves, that they mourn for their sin. They want to be found as righteous when they stand before God and before His throne. But they also hunger and thirst to live righteously. Not only to be found righteous before God, but to live a life as they go out, as they make their way in the world, as they're in relationship with other people, to live righteously in conformity to the character and commands of God. And finally, they long for a world that would be righteous, that would conform to the character and commands of God, that as they turn on the news, as they look at the the shipwreck of the world and all of the mess around them, there's a mourning and a sadness and a longing that the world would be righteous, that the righteousness of God would cover the earth as the water upon the seas. See, it's really moving from examining ourselves to examining God and ourselves in light of God. I think here's an example in Psalm 119 of someone who hungers for the character and commands of God. Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So blessed are those, Jesus says, who hunger. But how do we develop that hunger? If you are a Christian, that hunger is within you. But it must be cultivated. See, the Beatitudes are kind of like dominoes. They start at the beginning and continue to fall, bumping up against each other. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. If you are poor in spirit, if you recognize the difference between you and God, you mourn, which is beatitude number two, which leads to a meekness before God, which ultimately leads to a hunger to know him more and to be like him. John Piper put it this way, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite, for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. See, there's a big difference between being full and being satisfied. So that's my question. Are you full or are you satisfied? I, uh, when I married Leellen, uh, I married into her family and she had a cousin His name was Clyde, Clyde Mays. He's no longer with us. And he had a disease. It's called Prater-Willi syndrome. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's a a horrible disease. It's something is wrong with his chromosomes. But it basically leads to two things. Number one, your IQ is very low. But also, 
you're always hungry. There's, there's no switch in your brain to say, I'm full, I need to stop. And so f- from a very early age, Clyde was always hungry. And he would eat indiscriminately. Anything that he saw that he put his eyes on, he would eat. And so literally his mother had to watch every move. There was a padlock on the refrigerator, on the pantries. You know, imagine sending your kid off to school, you know, walking by a trash can. And, and instantly his eyes would go to that and he would be hungry. She did a fantastic job raising him. He lived far longer uh, than most people with this disease. But ultimately, well, sometime when she could not follow him, could not watch him, he ate and he ate and he ate until he didn't stop. So much that his stomach ended up bursting and Clyde passed away. See, Clyde was full, but he was never satisfied. The kingdom life has entered into you and me that we might be satisfied. For blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So how's your appetite? Has it been dulled by the things of the world, the endless trivialities? Now there are things that we hunger for and they're important things. If you're a teenager, you long to be noticed. You long to sit maybe at that table with that particular crowd and make that particular team or be asked by that particular guy. Those are all needs and desires. But they can maybe fill you in the end but never satisfy. Are you a spouse? You long for the approval of your other spouse. Maybe if you're a wife of your husband that he would notice you, that he would cherish you, that he would care for you. Maybe you can find some fullness in that, but you'll never find satisfaction. Nobody ultimately can take on their shoulders the role of God. You hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, if you're hungry, it proves that you're not dead. And so we all have a hungry. Everyone's got a hungry heart, right? Lay down your money and you play your part. And Jesus says, place your hunger on me. Place your hunger on my character and my commands. Isaiah 55 says, Come all who are thirsty. Come to the waters and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the riches of fare. See, here's the truth. You've got to put down one food to pick up another. You can't put two in your mouth at the same time, can you? So choose the kingdom of God. Jesus has set the table, his very life. So blessed are those who hunger for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hunger proves that we want God. But my second point shows that mercy proves that God wants us. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The Beatitudes, as I said, they build from poverty to mourning to meekness to hunger and now to the world. 
how we relate with other people. What exactly is mercy? Grace deals with the problem of sin, but mercy deals with the consequences of sin. I think the the best story, the best example is that of the Good Samaritan, remember? In Luke 10, where a teacher comes up to Jesus and said, what is the greatest command? Jesus says to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. But it says that he wanted to justify himself. So he said, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. There is this man that gets beat up and is left on the side of the road and a priest walks by him but moves to the other side. And a Levite walks by this person but moves to the other side. Doesn't want to mess with it. But this Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where this man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. This word compassion in the Greek, it literally translated means splagma, which means guts. He was moved in his guts for this person. And so he went to him, and he bandaged him, pouring on oil and wine, and he took this man to an inn, and he paid for him, look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you. And, it sa- and Jesus said to this man, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law said, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. See, this merciful one could not undo what these other people had done. But he could deal with the consequences of sin. He could step into this person's life. And so he crossed financial barriers. He crossed racial barriers. He crossed time barriers. And he had mercy on this man. Love and mercy are intertwined just like that. Jesus said, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Now it says, blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Is Jesus saying that a condition of us receiving mercy is to show mercy first? It's quite the opposite. It's the inside coming outside. What he's saying is we don't control our Christianity. Our Christianity controls us. Those who are believers, this mercy comes from our guts, from the inside out. That was his criticism of the Pharisees, right? Oh, you whitewashed tombs. You clean the outside. You look so pretty on the outside, but inside you're full of everything that is unclean. See, mercy is actually a mirror. It's a mirror that shows our heart. Remember that parable that Jesus gave therefore the king of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants and there was one that owed him 10,000 talents it's like several million dollars so he brings this guy to him says pay what you owe guy says I don't have it and the master ordered his family to be sold so he could pay off the debt which would be a pittance but this man pleaded and it said that the master had mercy on him, was moved in his guts. And so he canceled the debt. 
But then this guy goes out on the street and meets somebody who owes him 100 talents, which is the equivalent of 20 bucks. And he begins to choke him and say, pay back what you owe me. And the guy didn't have it. And so he ordered that he be sold. The master was furious when he heard about this. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? What Jesus is saying is because you have been shown mercy, you also should be and are merciful. It's as natural as night and day working together in tandem. The gospel should move our guts. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. I don't know if you've ever dealt with this historical question. How did Christianity come to become so big in such a short period of time? You know, Jesus was an uneducated person in the middle of a backroads country that never traveled more than 100 miles from where he lived. And yet 300 years later, within 300 years, Christianity was the official religion of the Roman Empire. How did that happen? There's a great book. It's by a guy named Rodney Stark. He's a historian. It's called The Rise of Christianity. And as he did a historical study of Christianity, what he discovered was that there were three specific spikes in population of those who claimed to be Christians. And they coincided with three devastating plagues. The Antonine Plague, the Plague of Cyprian, and the Plague of Justinian. By the way, wouldn't it be horrible to have a plague named after you? The Plague of Carlos, remember it? Wow, that was a tough one. See, what happened is when these plagues began, everybody would flee the city, except the Christians. The Christians would care for the dying and the sick, whether they were Christian or not. They showed mercy upon these people, even though it wasn't their problem, so to speak. And that was such a powerful and compelling witness that it moved in the hearts of other people in the Roman Empire to follow Jesus. You see, mercy costs. And where do you get the money? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in the end, the story of the Good Samaritan is the story of us. We were the guy lying on the side of the road. And everybody else passed by. But Jesus is the Good Samaritan who stopped, who crossed the street, who poured his blood on our wounds and healed us, who paid the price of his life on the cross that we might be made whole. The way we have mercy is to go to the cross. It's so easy to forget that we were the ones that owed the million talents, right? And so we must kneel at the cross in prayer and in the word every day. Not just waiting to come to Sunday to hear the gospel preached, but learning to preach it to ourselves. 
as we reflect upon his goodness and his mercy. See, in Christianity, before we focus on what we need to do, we must first focus on what it is that he has done until it moves us in our guts. Are you cold in your heart? Have you lost connection with the Good Samaritan? The great thing about Jesus is he cares for us every day. His oil and his wine and his money never run out. His grace continues to be lavished upon us moment by moment. He lifts us up and gives us a heart of mercy. This brings me to my final point. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You know, the deepest desire of man, when you peel back all the layers, is to see God. But how may we see God? The scriptures say in Psalm 24, 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. The word pure of heart literally means undivided. It means whole. It means it's not separated. And so you'll remember, of course, the story of David, the man after God's heart, who had a divided heart at a particular time in his life as he loved God. But he saw that woman bathing and he wanted her and his heart became divided. And in the end, what did David say? Oh God, create in me an undivided heart, a pure heart, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. How do we keep our heart pure? We could withdraw from the world and all of its evils. But the problem is that wherever we go, we're still there. Right? No, the only way to get a clean heart is to acknowledge that you don't have one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. See, it begins with us acknowledging that we don't have a pure heart. But Jesus says, I do. And you can have mine. See, Jesus is in the heart transplant business. Did he not say in Jeremiah that I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and to cause you to walk in my ways? Christianity is not about reformation. It's about transformation. That Jesus has given us a new heart inside of us that is growing, maybe slowly, maybe imperceptibly, but growing. And Jesus guards our heart. Came across this story in the Daily Mail, and I'll finish with this story. A mother has revealed how she has to bring her son back from the brink of death five times a year due to his rare heart condition. Three-year-old Aaron Sweeney has a rare heart condition. His heart can stop for up to seven minutes each time he suffers a collapse. He's only alive thanks to his mother, Jelaine Clark, who has been trained to revive her son using a handheld defibrillator, which she keeps with her 24 hours a day. They were in the process of preparing a, a surgery where they would implant this defibrillator, I never can say that word, underneath the skin so that it would go ahead. 
As I thought and I read about this story, I thought that that's exactly what Jesus does with my heart. It wants to stop. It wants to revert back. It's a diseased heart. But Jesus is with me 24-7. He says, I'll give you a new heart. Jesus is the only one that ever lived with an undivided heart. And so we must look to Jesus. When my heart fails, when I am divided, when I want to give up, Jesus is there to fix my heart, to give me mercy, to give me a pure heart. For blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. I finish with this final comment. The hunger for the world will always lead to emptiness. But the hunger for God will always lead to satisfaction. Choose to be satisfied, not just full. Choose to receive the merciful hand of God as the good Samaritan and live with his heart as he walks alongside of us to continue to revive us again and again that we may walk in his will and his ways. God is good all the time. Let's pray.